Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck and I'm your host and your name is Listener and that's what you do. You listen. So listen up. How are you? Good. Uh, what a week, what a life, what a day, what a day to be listening to a brand new podcast. I know I get excited when I see a new podcast in the old podcast library when that little notification comes up. I'm like, yes, get to be back with my friends for an hour or so. A little reprieve from my thoughts, a little vacation from me. And that's all I'm looking for, gentlemen and ladies and any and anyone that doesn't identify as either. Uh, I'm just looking for a vacation from me. Um, what's new? A little annoyed, little pissed, and I'll tell you why. And I don't know if I'm becoming an old man, or a square, or just a fucking stick in the mud, but I think using the phrase stick in the mud confirms that I am an old man and a square. But listen, if I come into your establishment, don't fucking what's up me. I, I got a big issue with this. I don't like this, you know? Yeah, people too comfortable. Like, listen, I realize in the service industry, there's, you know, it's usually a lower barrier of entry and that doesn't make it any less honorable. In fact, it perhaps makes it more honorable that it's just people who are willing to work hard um, doing a really challenging job for, uh, you know, not a huge amount of money because it's this is, you know, this is our world and you got to work and you got to make a living. But listen... If I come in to get a coffee, once this, I was at a pizza place and this kid literally looked at me, he worked behind the counter, must've been in his early twenties. And he was like, what's up? And I, I was like, are we going to fight? Are we having a, are we, is this going to come to blows? Cause I just came in here to buy a delicious pizza pie and you're fucking supping me. Don't sup me, bro. Because I'll sup you right back. I'll sup you right in your fucking face, piece of shit. <laughs> God, I go deep and dark quick. But I just don't, I don't like sup. I don't like, what's up, man? I, I, I'm going to hand you money for a service right now. And listen, again, like, I understand, like, if you're a fucking, you know, kid who's either in community college or not just trying to like make a little bit of extra scratch so you can like have money to go out to the club on the weekend. I get that. I don't expect you to be like, you know, extremely polished, but just like a, Hey, how are you? What can I get you? Or hi, what would you like? Got your eye on anything? Hey, great day out. How about a coffee? Cause you're in my coffee establishment. Any of those will do. Excuse me, sir. You look like you are in the mood for a delicious pizza pie. Can I suggest a topping? That I would enjoy. But I don't know, man. It's like I, I just don't. I, it feels very confrontational <laughs> and disrespectful. I don't like it. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I don't like it. And maybe I'm a douche. But I, you know, to me, the ultimate in service is at a fine steakhouse. When they come out in that white coat and they, you know, good evening, ma'am. Good evening, sir. What can I get you? What can I suggest? Right away. No problem. Oh, was this steak not right? Fuck me. 
God, this is all my fault. Allow me to remedy this rapidly. That's what I like. And granted, listen, you know, you pay for that. You pay for that level of service. I get that. But is this so hard? I mean, I just feel like if I worked at any of these establishments that I would be, I would just be straight down the line. Hello, sir. What can I get you? Hello, ma'am. You know, it goes a long way. It's bad. It's, it's, oh man, it's not good. I'm not, uh, I don't know. Should I not care? Is this like the, the, the pitfalls of age is that you become like persnickety and you become that like fucking, you know, grouchy old dude who's like, oh, that's Mr. Peck to you, young squirrel. <laughs> yeah. You address me correctly. Look, I grew up not doing Mr. and Mrs. Because my mom, you know, like, I was always, you know, pretty respectful kid. But, like, uh, you know, if your name was Karen, I was calling you Karen. But now my wife, who, like, comes from a different upbringing that I, I would almost say is slightly more respectful. <laughs> you know, she, in their household, they, you know, if, if you're the parents of the friends, they're... For the most part, they're Mr. and Mrs. And I like that shit. I'm going to give that to my kid. I want people to treat me like I'm a sensei at a dojo. And do they have to call me Master Peck? No, but would I hate it? No. You know? I like that. A little bow, maybe. I'm not against that. I don't know, man. I just think I, I'm not a big sup. Don't sup me when I walk in here. I'm not your bro. I'm not your homie. We don't even have to. We don't have to exchange niceties. Just like let's keep it above board. What can I get you? A nice coffee, please. Cream, room. No thanks. Thank you. Credit card here. Oh, by the way, I've been using the credit card function on my Apple iPhone. You know where you just kind of like you double click the power button and then you put it on the card reader and it just like immediately takes your card information. You don't even have to pull your card out of your wallet. Like you pay with your phone. Now, hear me out. I realize this has been a technology that has been in use for a good amount of time. I'm new to it and I feel like I'm in the fucking future. I can't get over it. So many places accept it. It's very cool, man. If you aren't doing it yet, I'd suggest you do it because you just kind of boop and then it doesn't even feel like I'm spending money. It's probably dangerous. But nevertheless, you know, it's funny. I <laughs> I was walking through uh, Nordstrom's the other day, buying my father-in-law a Father's Day gift because they don't make them like me anymore. And <laughs> it's not even my dad, but it doesn't matter to me. Love the guy. Um, and I'm trying to buy his love. But anyway, I'm walking through Nordstrom's and I'm like, <laughs> I fell victim to advertising. Because Adam Levine, front man, lead singer of Maroon 5, one of my favorite bands. Mar you know, Adam Levine, I fucks with him. I like him. You are welcome on the podcast, Adam. Or or should I say Mr. Levine? Anyway, I'm walking through Nordstrom, and he is, I guess, the face of now, like, the new Yves Saint Laurent cologne. And I saw him, and I saw the cologne. And I immediately thought... I gotta try that cologne. Hmm. What's Adam Levine doing on that? I imagine Adam Levine smells great. I gotta... 
Never thought to try it, but I want to I wanna know what that smells like. And granted, what does Adam Levine have to do with cologne? I'm not knocking the guy. He's the best. Maybe he's a, you know, a, a, a perfume hobbyist and mixes his own shit in the middle of, you know, having the best life ever. He takes some time out to, to you know, is, is, is sort of a, a chemist hobbyist. I don't know. But, like, in reality, he probably just got paid a good amount of money to rep this cologne because his brand is complimentary to theirs, which, God bless him, I would do that in a second. But I just found myself falling victim to it. It's like if Adam Levine was, was you know, promoting a guitar or singing lessons, that I would get. But cologne? Like, what? But I guess inevitably, like, who represents cologne? Pharrell? I don't know. I'd, I'd buy anything Pharrell sells, but you get the picture. Anyway, I'm wearing the cologne now, and it smells incredible. Um, what else? What else? More to talk about. I've been writing things down throughout the week so that I have more to talk about in, like, my rants, which will either be good or bad, considering it will probably make them longer, but inevitably, like, I don't know. If you hate the rants, you've already skipped this part anyway, so, you know, fuck off. Um, okay. Oh, suggesting a new podcast for you guys to listen to. I'd like to do that every week. I'm probably going to run out soon, but Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton, a former guest of the Curious Podcast. I can't say enough thing, nice things about Nick. Lovely guy. Came on my podcast. I'm a huge fan of his and his books, American Kingpin and Hatching Twitter. And now I love his podcast. But recently, you know, he was talking about sort of, it was one of his new, he he had written an article, I believe, in Vanity Fair about sort of Facebook and YouTube and how they're sort of these like immense aggregates of like all your information and they learn so much about you and what have you. But like, it got me thinking about curation. And he, he, he made a statement much to the effect of like, my YouTube page, if I opened it up now, would look completely different from yours and yours would look completely different than your best friend or spouse or family member. And I was thinking about it the other day and I was talking about it with my wife and it's like, you know, I think because of the nature of social media and laser point marketing, because now through Facebook and all these different sort of things, they're able to sell your information to a massive retailer to say, Josh Peck is a guy in his early 30s, Jew, new father, neurotic, uh, enjoys magic, uh, smoking vapes, and that's not true, and, you know, exercising mildly and has a podcast. What do you got for him? And they can like bullet laser advertise to me. And now, you know, the way that we are sort of faced with the way in which we consume sort of entertainment is our Instagram page or our Netflix page or YouTube, what have you. And everything has become curated to our exact likes. Instead of how it was before where you read the newspaper, which was something in which we hired people to sort of curate exactly what was in fashion, trendy, um, cool. And so now, 
you're just being fed more of the shit that you already like. So if you're a Republican and you follow a lot of Republicans on Twitter, well, you're just going to get more and more messaging that sort of, uh, for better or for worse, promotes what you already think. Same thing for the libs. Same thing for if you're into a myriad of other things. If you follow ESPN, you're going to get a bunch of sports shit. And so I don't think it's any surprise why sometimes people of the sort of millennial age and later you know, we lament about the fact of like, what happened? What happened to like the dope indie movie that everyone was talking about or that particular song that everyone was into? Like, I just find that people are, 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 are sort of, you know, their discovery process is different because we've become our own arbiters of what we like because social media is pinpointing and just refreshing the things that we're already into instead of being forced to look at the newspaper or word of mouth or some dope blog, perhaps like some other discovery um, system in which to to find new things that we wouldn't normally uh, be exposed to. So that's just my armchair assessment, but I I'm pretty sure I'm right. And you you were just forced to listen to my opinion on something for multiple minutes, and for that I'm sorry. Anyway, Nick Bilton, Inside the Hive. Listen to that podcast. It's very good. Last thing, Father's Day. Oh, I did write that we're perpetuating bad taste through curation, which was sort of like, I forgot to say that. That would have been a nice sort of cap off. So basically, (laughs) we're perpetuating bad taste through curation. All right. Uh, Last thing, Father's Day. That was this weekend, my first. Let me tell you, what a fucking holiday this is. Unbelievable. I mean, it's like better than your birthday because you get gifts and your family plans shit for you and there's no pressure. There's no pressure to invite people. There's no pressure to like come up with something. You don't have people asking you for weeks before, what are we doing? Are just a dinner? That's no fun. What do you, what would you, what would you really want to do? Um, and if your thing is like, I, I want to fucking watch golf and chill and eat a meal later in the day, they, you're the people who love you and are beholden to you literally rally around your slothful ways. I mean, is this a beautiful holiday or what? But, uh, yeah, I can't believe, you know, rarely in life do you get given an extra holiday except that one. I mean, when other in, you know, is there another time in life where you gain a holiday? Uh, I suppose if you were like really into flag day, but I'm not quite even sure what that is. Anyway, it was quite lovely. And, uh, and I'm a dad now. So that's great because I never met my own dad and uh, sucks for him. Anyway, he's dead. He probably didn't even think about me on his last days. This got weird quick. Um, on today's show, Sam Laybourne. God, I love this guy. He's he's just the best. Uh, brilliant writer for 
so many different shows, but just to name a couple, uh, Grandfathered, heard of it, Blackish, heard of it. Uh, he was one of the co-creator showrunners of the Michael J. Fox show. He worked on Arrested Development and, and so many other things. And, and he's just, you know, he's a gem of a guy. He's got such an interesting story, and I felt so lucky to have him on the podcast. So can't wait to share it with you guys. We get a little inside baseball. This is kind of industry-heavy this episode. So if you're not into that, my apologies. But if you are, I imagine this is like a very interesting insight from someone who has so much success and experience in the bees. So enjoy, Sam. Guys, we're losing our hair. Let's be honest. 66% of men, they lose their hair by age 35. Happy birthday. Welcome to midlife. Bye-bye to your hair follicles. What? Thanks a lot, Mother Nature. I mean, and the truth is, most of us ain't Jason Statham. It's not a good look. You better hope you got a good shape head if you're you're going bald. Because many of us, I don't know, maybe your mother left you uh, sleeping a little too long when you were a baby and you got an indent on the right side. You don't want to know. And you don't want to figure that out. But you know what? Hims is going to help you to not have to figure that out. Why? Well, listen... Because uh, thanks to science, baldness can be optional. Hims connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss. I mean, do, do you want a bald spot to pop up? Or, or do you want to do something about it first? Do you want your hairline to recede? Or you want to do something about it? Because the truth is, it's easier to keep the hair you have than to replace the hair you've lost. I'll be honest, I knew a kid in ninth grade. His hairline was way back even then. I was like, yo... It looks like your hairline owes your forehead money because it's it's in hiding. All right, listen, there's no waiting room. There's no awkward in-person doctor visits. You're going to save hours by going to 4 because they got the real doctors. They've got medical-grade solutions to treat your hair loss. They've got well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescriptions to help you keep your hair. None of this snake oil or gas station counter supplements. Prescription solutions backed by science. You just answer a few questions. Doctors will review and can prescribe you all that good stuff. Products are shipped directly to your door. So get excited. My listeners get a trial month for Hims for just $5 today right now while supplies last. See website for full details and safety information. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy. So go to 4 slash man. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash man. 4 dot com slash man. Man. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning 
Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. And I can't tell, like, I coached myself to be ready for him to be a dancer. Or whatever, like I was that open-minded in my philosophy, but he's, sure. I've become a sports dad. Like, all I care about is his games, yeah. I coach his basketball team. You can't help it. No. It's just, because I grew up as like a somewhat jockey guy, mm. so. Sammy Laybourne was a jockey guy? Yeah. Wow, because you're okay. so musical and creative and artistic. I was uh, I triple football at a time when the whole goal was to hit somebody as hard as you could with the top of your helmet so you'd get marks on your helmet. Sick. <laughs> and, and I definitely have lost a step mentally. Yeah. Like, I definitely hurt my abilities to, to think right. from, uh, from that experience. I have a whole thing, because, you know, my wife's dad was a, was a quarterback for the Jets for 10 years. Oh, my God. Ken O'Brien. Yeah. Your, your father is Ken O'Brien? My father-in-law. Father-in-law? <laughs> yeah. You ever like, hey, let's go toss the pigskin around out back? Absolutely not. <laughs> because I, the first time I went to pick up my wife for our date, he was playing catch in the front yard with my wife's 6'8", um, genetically blessed brother, who was QB1 <laughs> at Fresno State. Oh, wow. And these genetic wonderkins, they don't play catch like us, Sam. I mean, maybe like me. You know, like you play catch and you kind of kind of sail it. Yeah, yeah. You put a little air in it. Yeah. And then it just kind of like slowly is delivered into your bread basket. <laughs> <laughs> These fucks, they throw lasers. I mean, and you have to catch it by your head. Right. Who knew that? <laughs> Who knew that was a thing? So I, I'm 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 I, I feel honored that my father in law, I think, has looked past my physical inequities <laughs> and why I'm just like a baby man with like the scarrings of my 300 pound former self. And he's like, you know what? He's nice to my daughter. <laughs> he doesn't That's ask me something. for money. Yeah. <laughs> like kids. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't hate spiral. Them. Maybe not, but <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Wait, where did you play football? I played at a tiny Quaker school. This is the best way to play football. Friends? Yeah, friends school. It wasn't friends, but it was it was called George School in Pennsylvania. Oh. Tiny oh. little school. But I'd grown up in Montclair, New Jersey, which had a huge football program. They have David Tyree, mm. the helmet catch from the Giants Patriots game. Uh, so it was like this huge program. And then I went to this Quaker school. And I've been playing since seventh grade, and I was tiny and not that good, but I was better than all these Quakers who right. had never played before. <laughs> so I would just murder all the Quakers in practice and had the best time of my life. I feel like to me, growing up in the East Coast, I I somewhat know what a Quaker is, and but I equate Quakers with rich kids. Like Quaker yes, schools yes. are for rich kids. I think there's a lot of truth in that because mm. it's parents who are like trying to find a simpler time through spending their money. Yes. You know, it's it has the allure of being, you know, simple and about inner light and about all these very quaint feelings. But like any boarding school, it costs, you know, $50,000 to go or whatever bananas number it is. So Wait, yeah. it was boarding school. Yeah, it was half boarding and half day, day school. And you went full. I was full boarder. 
Yeah. So it's like Hogwarts. It was, <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> it was exactly like Hogwarts. Is there any point, and I know this isn't true because these schools are like very elite and in many ways prepare you, but is there any point when you're like 14, 10 months away from your parents at school where you go like, do my parents not like me? <laughs> is there a part of that? I, I definitely think that is part of the narrative. And I was a prefect. And a pre, a that prefect, sounds Harry Potter. It sounds so Harry Potter. That is the bougiest thing you can say. I was a prefect. <laughs> uh, and it's like you're like a dorm parent, essentially, or you're like a dorm student mm. in the school. And uh, I was in the freshman dorm when I was a senior. And there are definitely kids there whose parents didn't care about them. <laughs> and there are definitely yeah. kids there who were like the children of super wealthy tycoons who were just shipped off at 14. My folks, we are very cool. And so it was like my sister had gone there. So I think it was more an opportunity for me to like uh, follow in her footsteps and do some of the cool stuff that the school allowed. Because it was Quaker and kind of artsy, it wasn't quite the thing where like, People are throwing soap in pillowcases and beating <laughs> freshmen. And Fair. It wasn't like super, like stereotypically boarding school. Is that happening like in Andover and Exeter? I feel like some crazy shit happens at those schools. Did you hear it? Like, would you hear that on the boarding school beat? On the boarding school beat. Yeah. yeah there would be whisperings. I mean, we had, it's funny because whenever you try to, tell people in the regular world about your childhood boarding school experience, there are moments where you start to say crazy shit. Like, yeah, sure, when you're taking a shower in the gang showers, you'd look over and a kid would be peeing on your leg as a goof. Sure. And you try to tell adults that, and they're like, that's disgusting. Why? <laughs> that's, it's, a, it's a hate crime? It's a sex crime? Mm. That's totally inappropriate. And you're like, ah, it was fun. <laughs> and, and then when you get into that, it feels very blue-bloody, kind of like uh, justifying like male privilege, all these like gross things. You were like, you don't know Todd. Yeah. <laughs> Todd, he's, he's a gas. He's a gas. <laughs> um, yeah, there was a lot of that. So I guess... It wasn't, so it was different in a sense, but underneath all that is the undergirding of what boarding school is really all about, which is these like privilege incubators. Right. And uh, I liked it because I actually got to do a lot of stuff. Like that's where I got into writing, creative writing, and that's where I got into performing and singing and all, all the stuff that comes with being at a boarding school where you can kind of be a jack of all trades. Whereas in my Montclair High School, you would be mercilessly mocked if people knew you were hanging out with the drama kids or whatever, you know, so. My mom's from West Orange, New Jersey. Oh, represent, so, yeah. yeah. so that's like, what, 15 minutes from Montclair? Yeah, yeah, sure. So what's that, like, North Jersey life? I mean, you were like, I mean, I guess it's like very typical suburban whatever, right? It was, yeah, and it's, it's funny because a lot of my friends now are moving to Montclair. Montclair has gotten this kind of luster of, like, a cool, hip, um, sort of literate yeah. suburb. Colbert. Colbert lives there. Lives there. Yes. And all these guys, a friend of mine is the uh, editor at uh, New York Times Magazine, and he lives there. And uh, it's it's a cool place to live, but I can never fuck with it. You yeah. know what I mean? Because it's my childhood. And I grew up, you know, like we would uproot like important uh, parking signs and like stop signs and stuff and just like, plant them on people's yards yeah. in ninth grade High when jinx. we were out wilding, you know, like, <laughs> uh, yeah, just the hijinks. And it, it feels, it felt like if, when I look back on it, 
there were many moments I could have died mm. just doing dumb shit. And of course, you grew up in the city, right? So you yeah. had that. I mean, everywhere is is a challenge for kids, but suburbs felt especially insidious because it has this patina of being nice and simple and and well planned out, and the kids are all just acting like maniacs. I remember in seventh grade, I thought it would be funny to lay in the street. And then... <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great seventh grade. <laughs> I'm like, this is ill. And <laughs> it was on 47th Street between 9th and 10th Avenue. That's so... a major thrill. <laughs> yeah, it was like midday, and it was like weirdly okay. And you know, I was going to end like my drama major because I was at performing arts school. Mm. And and the vice principal saw me, and like I walked into a death trap of a of a of a home when I walked into my house, and my mom had gotten the call, like because it was like you're an idiot, but now you're uh, putting your life in danger, idiot. Yeah. Like, if I had talked shit to a teacher right, or right. cheated, I think my mom would have been cooler about it. Like, don't do that. Yeah, but yeah. the fact that I was, like, putting myself in danger, I got, oh, man, it was upset. I got grounded. I wasn't allowed to go to the auto show at the Jacob Javits Center. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob Javits, let's go. <laughs> that is a seriously cruel punishment, man. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And it I, the IROC Z was there that year. <sighs> It was an incredible, I mean, there's like a Chevy Avalanche I wanted to see. <laughs> there's so many like, uh, and this ill Mitsubishi. And sure, they're going to come strong. <laughs> and my mom, yeah. And I just remember I'd, I'd received a bunch of computer games from my bar mitzvah from a, from a cousin who worked for a, a computer game company. And mm. which I guess isn't really a gift because you know he got them for free. Yeah. But nevertheless... She like let me, she was like, you can play these computer games, but you're not leaving the house. That's uh, it. I was like, this is a weird bargain. You got good at like Zelda. Half-Life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I miss it. Um, and so was your mom always in, you know, obviously she was the president of Nickelodeon. Yes. Was she always sort of like in the biz, sort of like a titan of industry in that way? She, when I was growing up, she was kind of coming up through the ranks at Nickelodeon. And it was very cool because as a young kid, I think she was always, I think my mom, to roll it back for a second, was always just one of those highly efficient mm. doers, you know? And so, you know, she was the president of the Pat Boone fan club in middle school. And so she was always just kind of that person. She was um, one of, on the committee that made Vassar College, where she still does a lot of like board work. She helped them co-educate. Uh, and so she's always just been like a, a pusher and, and kind of getting stuff done. But when she she was like an educator who did children's programming. And then she got hired by Nickelodeon as like a, you know, just like a programming person on their staff. And 80s? I, in the 80s, yeah. Okay. And if you remember back, back in the days, probably before your time, they had a silver ball, this like bouncing silver pinball. That was kind of their overall logo. And it was as cheesy as it can possibly get. And Nickelodeon had this kind of rep for being like, like an educational service for children, you know? And so she came in and really believed strongly in empowering kids. And so I think that was her secret sauce. And we started doing stuff when I was a kid where we would try out uh, physical challenges for Double Dare in our basement. Sick. It was the best. Wow. Uh, Jeffrey Darby, the guy who created uh, 
I shouldn't. I actually, I don't know who created what, but he was, was it a, Mark Summers. Mark Summers was yeah. They 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 had some some deep creative brainstorming sessions but jeffrey darby was the executive who was producing it and he was a good friend of our family so they would come over and we would like like step on toothpaste to see if we could hit targets with it and eat gross things and uh god i guess we were kind of abused as children let's <laughs> think about it yeah guinea Stockholm pigs. Syndrome. it was cool man <laughs> uh no but it really was fun we we felt like we were kind of part of my mom's team in a cool way and so from a very young age i felt I mean, so privileged to be asked questions. You know, she really looked at us as like marketing research and wanted to know, like, she has this story she would tell a lot on speeches for Nickelodeon early on that I was getting picked on by kids at school because Nickelodeon was doo-doo television. Mm. And I was like, Mom, you, you're you're repping doo-doo. Like, this is not <laughs> a good look for me. I wore right. a Nickelodeon hat and got, like, killed at school. Um so I think she, you know, so we got to do stuff like, anyways, like physical challenges in the basement. And then uh, we got to, we were actually in a show called Turkey Television, which was like sketch comedy early on for Nickelodeon. And Adam Bernstein, who's going on to be a huge director, uh, did all the segments and my sister and I were in them. I indicate a lot as an actor. I'm a big uh, Are you? goof. I'm not very talented. I don't see that. <laughs> I think of all the... And, you know, you always suspect that writers sort of have that, especially comedy writers. Yeah. There's always an underlying feeling as an actor where you're like, this guy thinks he can do it better than me. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Because you write the joke. And it's so hilarious because... I tell you, writers are the worst actors. Are they? Every now and then there's like an amazing example and, and that's that's wonderful. But the idea that we can write words and then we like go on set, I will constantly, like when we were working on Grandfathered, there were times where, you know, everyone knows that when you're giving a actor a an idea of like how to hit, hit a joke differently or just approach a scene differently, like the wackest thing you can do is a line reading, right? Because that's like, and a line reading for listeners is like just saying the line exactly as yeah. you want it to be Say said. Say it like this. Yeah. Say it like this. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And uh, when act when writers do that, they think they've like nailed it, and they're always wrong. Like they and then and then they've just slowed down the process. It's so hard because like I've interviewed people like Vincent D'Onofrio yeah. and, and a bunch of actor friends of mine who basically unanimously say, "Don't talk to me in metaphors. Yeah. Don't tell me like this joke is like you know like when your mom is like angry at you because you've been out like playing badminton all day. You're like, no, <laughs> I don't. Never played badminton. Yeah, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I, I and yeah and you know you're so right and that it is this like weird faux pas about line readings and in most cases it's like not appropriate yeah. and yet there are times yeah because i don't have an ego in that way where i'm like what do you want you're good with that yeah where i'm just like fucking because sometimes i know that for better or for worse the way this line is in my head is not translating the way you want and i can see it in your face right 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 you know you walk by when you walk by like the writer's sort of like little uh huddle yeah right the scrum yeah <laughs> and you're like i'm not hitting it because it's yeah. music you know if the note's wrong right 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 and sometimes after like two or three takes you just want to be like how did you laugh at it in the room right 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 how do you hear it it is true and it is it is and i and i always appreciate it and i remember you and Paget would do this a lot where you just be like just just tell me the thing. It's all good. Like we don't have to go through the like you're saying, like the the steps of respecting the process. Like yes. just give me the fucking scoop. And it does definitely, I think, 
help at times. I think it's an interesting thing because sometimes, like I pitched a joke in the room and it's gotten a big laugh just in that moment. And then even like two days later at a table read, there's just something, it just doesn't keep the same magic. And it's not necessarily the actor's fault. It's just like the context of being in the room or like we'll do like a weird bit in the room. Mm. And we we always joke about being writers where you if you ever try to share one of the bits in the room with your spouse later that night, it just dies. And you're like, and then Cafferty said, what's the banana for? <laughs> and you're like dying. And they're just like, I literally have no idea what this means. Right. And so sometimes I think trying to replicate what was funny in the room on set even isn't going to work. And, and I think what was cool about grandfathered and Danny and, Dan Fogelman and everybody empowering me when I came down and was like on set with you guys is if John didn't like something or you didn't like something or Padgett didn't like something, we would say, let's just try something else. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. that was good because at least now we can create a bit that's on its feet and we all know it's funny because we're doing it right now as opposed to trying to replicate some highly worded joke that just isn't landing. Sometimes we can get it there, but sometimes we can't. You know what I mean? Is it? Yeah, it's it, it's a really interesting sort of paradox, and it's also why, like, obviously, I've always I, I was sort of groomed on sitcoms, and then I remember coming to Grandfathered, and that was my sensibility, like half hour single cam comedy, fucking high concept, right. Parks and Rec, we're doing it, like, yeah, yeah, you know, this is like the high end shit, and like sitcoms, like that's cheesy bullshit. But I remember for certain moments on days like that, right, where I would read something or we'd get on set. And I would imagine that, like, I bet this killed in the room. But for whatever reason, coming out of my mouth, and maybe I'm fucking it up, or maybe it just sounds mm. weird, it's just not hitting. And I remember in those moments thinking, I sort of wish we had three days of rehearsal like we did on a sitcom to yeah. troubleshoot this thing. Totally. And that's the thing about half-hour comedies. You don't have any of that. It's so hard. And it's, it's one of the things that I've learned, like, there's a lot of talk about shooting short on single cam. And I, to all the listeners out there, <laughs> write your scripts short. Because it is true. Like, if you have a 32-page script, right, we're just banging out scene after scene every day. We're trying to make our days. The director's trying to make their days because they're usually a guest, right? Mm. So you don't have a lot of time for this material. So the, even in a rehearsal, you're pushing the director to get through it quickly. You're not like trying stuff for 20 minutes right. and then being like, okay, now we'll shoot it. And because you don't have that multicam rehearsal, I often feel like stuff is just about getting the words and moving on. And I learned that the hard way on when I ran Michael J. Fox show and created it, co-created with Will Gluck in New York. And we would... Right, we had these like very, you know, dense scripts that we thought were really funny, A, B, and C story. But on the day, something just wouldn't wouldn't be playing and and you needed to build into your schedule time to rehearse. You needed to shoot less pages each day so you could do stuff and like find what's really funny because in single cam there's this lie writers tell ourselves, which is like we craft these beautiful scripts and only if the actors can get it perfect it'll be great. Yes. But you go on set and the dopest joke you ever told, it's just sitting there. And what's funny is, you know, Josh, your your little weird face reaction to the end, that's where the laugh is. So we've spent all this time crafting this super high-tech joke that's like a Rube Goldberg machine of <laughs> hilarity. And it's just sitting there. It's just like 
people are sharing information. But then you just like pick up a bottle of water and look at it in a weird way, and that's a gigantic laugh. And if we don't have the time to find that stuff on set, you know, it's it, it's a shame, you know. Guys, listen, the secret's out, and that is that life is hard. And it helps when you have someone to talk to, okay? And I, I, I can speak from experience that my life has been dramatically um, helped and enhanced by having someone who is licensed and a professional to bounce things off of, to go to in crisis, or even when things were good, just to kind of get out the things that were going on inside my head. And... Is there something that interferes with you or your happiness or, or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Because BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment, and it's so convenient. It's private. It's online. You don't even have to go anywhere. They've got licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, sleeping, trauma, self-esteem, anxiety. We, we all got that. Anything you share is completely confidential. They have 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. It's available worldwide. It's convenient, professional, and affordable. Best of all, it's the truly affordable option and curious would Josh Peck listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code curious. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash curious. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash curious. So I think this is like interesting to the people and like, you know, I've been in the biz for long enough and I don't even grinding. <laughs> I, I have no idea like what, and obviously it's going well cause I have a podcast now anyway. So, <laughs> but no like, big deal. Two microphones, two stands. <laughs> but like, I'm, I'm interested to know. So what is, it, it feels as though, especially in network stuff yeah. that there's a reticence to, adjust anything too much and is that because you've had the network sign off and if you don't deliver what they signed oh, off on they're gonna be there you're gonna catch heat for it uh, that's a good question sometimes i think it's it's unfortunately so much fear in this industry so i think it is oftentimes the network you went through this gauntlet for the last month of getting this script approved and sometimes you've done a million rewrites it's been this and so you feel like it's approved and you've unfortunately come to really assume, like I love being a collaborator. I'm a team player. When there's a great note, it's wonderful. It makes your, your shit better. But you come to, because the process is so arduous, you come to believe that whatever you've landed on is like the Bible. Yeah. And it's partly because you don't want to make the network mad. It's partly because it's just been so hard. You're like, let's just get it now. And that's unfortunate because you lose some of the sort of fluidity of stuff. The razzle-dazzle. The dazzle. Some might dazzle. say. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and sometimes it's like there can be shows in which we're like, we're just going to improvise. And you'll get in the editing room and you cut all the improvisation because it's really funny on the day because it's different. But then when you get in there, it's not really advancing story and it's kind of just like a bit, you know what I mean? So there can be a point at which inventing on the day is like too much is gilding the lily or it's just kind of fluff and when you get down to the cold hard cut of the episode you lose a lot of it mm. but i still think you know it's partly important and back to your question about 
keeping to the script, I think a lot of times it's because the creator can't be on set all day. Mike, I remember Mike Fox, I call him Mike Fox because we're boys. Michael J? Michael J. Wow, you abbreviate his name. I do. I'm just sick. So chill about it all. Man. Uh, <laughs> but he, he, in the middle of the season once, he was like, you got to be down here more. And he was totally right. And one of it is, I have a big laugh, and I think people like hearing my goofy laugh on You set. have a story to laugh. I mean, <laughs> guys, that's just like 10% of what he's got in there. It's, 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 uh, I've been mocked for it. It's like a loud call of the wild. Love it. Some weird animal. But, uh, but I think Mike enjoyed, I mean, you know, he's a performer. He's used to multi-camp stuff. So when I wasn't around, a, I, so I'm saying, I think 10% of it is my talent for adjusting stuff on the fly. 90% is just that I have a funny laugh. But he was right. When I wasn't there, we just didn't have that green light to try stuff because either it was a you know producing director there or a visiting director or one of the other writers, and they just wouldn't feel as comfortable making big swings mm. without asking me. And by the way, I would have been like, go for it. But it's just the process, you know what I mean? What's it like in the writer's room I'm interested here because on a network show, you'll have anywhere from what, like eight to 12 writers, yeah, you know, sometimes yeah. more. Yeah. Sometimes like 15 even. Mm -hmm. So uh, that dynamic fascinates me as far as like, who are you rewarded for being the spitfire guy that maybe has a hundred batting average, but he's, but you're throwing out 10 jokes and, right. and no matter what you're getting one or two in, or are you better being the measured guy that only pitches when you really got a fucking heater? Some lasers. That's a really interesting question. I think I've, I've thought about that at different times. And I think in different contexts, I've been different things, uh, but I've never been real quiet. Word. I definitely talk a lot. <laughs> and I thought, like, maybe I should just lay low in the mix today. <laughs> like, you're getting a lot of layborn. And it really changes. Like, it's a cool thing about the job and a frustrating thing is on any given day, you just don't have it. And so you'll try to pick your battles and you're just, you're just not feeling funny. Or, um, but usually the best of the best uh, aren't constantly pitching, like, areas. There's sort of a no-no which is to be like, oh, man, it would be so funny if he said something that had to do with televisions right now. <laughs> You're like, mm -hmm. yeah, that does sound like there's probably something there. Can you elucidate on what kind of joke you're talking about? So there's some people who will do that a lot. There's some people who will repitch something that someone else said just louder with like a slightly different word. God damn it. And that's kind of like a kind of faux pas too. Ever had a fight, a fist fight in the room? Ever a shoving match? And there's never, I mean, most people are very gracious about stuff, but a friend of mine did tell me, I won't say who it was, but a friend of mine did tell me he was like a young writer on a show and he had pitched a really funny joke when the showrunner was out of the room. And you always feel like, oh man, I wish the showrunner had seen that to show, to show him what I got. And anyways, he the showrunner came back in and was reading the script off the uh, monitor in the room. It was like, oh, man, that joke's so funny. Who told that one? And another guy says, like, guilty is charged and took credit no. for the dude's joke. No. And that is a terrible position to be in. Because if you call him out, you're a joke-grubbing kind of, like, <laughs> technocrat who's like, that technically was mine. But you also just had a huge opportunity to kind of show your boss that you're funny. And this guy <laughs> uh, was like, I guess I, that's the one's on me. Oh, fuck. Uh, so that was, that's tough. But uh, th there haven't been, mostly rooms are 
uh, I wouldn't say mostly, but I've been really lucky in that most of the rooms I've been in have been warm and like collaborative and we're all giving each other credit for jokes and just trying to be, you know. I'm always surprised when like stand-ups or writers are great. Not gracious is the wrong word. Like just happy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, You know, because it's such like, I mean, you know, you think about the writer's sort of journey and and the archetype of who we think of as writers as yeah. a tortured existence anyway. Yes. And then you add, like, stand-up to it or TV writing and the grind of that, and it's like, you're not fucking, you know, Hemingway off in a cabin by yourself with 18 months to write your next thing. It's like, no, we need this by 5 o'clock. Yeah, yeah. And so... I. You know, it just seems, it's funny too, because I always feel that when you walk onto a set, every department has a uh, uniform. Yeah, so, <laughs> so true. Like the grips and like the gaffers, like the real men are in fucking cargo shorts yeah, in like pockets. December, many yeah. pockets, a yeah. Leatherman perhaps. Sure, a little fleece or a fleece vest. Just. A high-end tape measure. Yeah, there's going to be one. It's probably got a laser on it. And they know what, they know the food that's come out right away. Oh, yeah, yeah. At craft Chalupas service. over at Crafty. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> there's quesadillas. <laughs> Do the guac, not the sour cream. I like they're kind of quiet, just like, I'm giving you the inside shit here. Yeah. And like, they're probably on a substance. Yeah. Low-end weed, high-end Adderall. Sure. But they're like, fuck it. They're having a great day. Having a blast. And then like, the wardrobe people, and I'll get my ass kicked for generalizing, it's mostly like female, and it's mostly dressed in some crazy ass shit. Some great, like, big swooping flamingo ear earrings. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, oversized sweater, perhaps. Yep, yep, yep. And then the writers are in, like, uh, usually a button-up shirt. You can just describe what I'm wearing right now. That's some fine. New Balances <laughs> and or Adidas. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> like, and it's, yeah, it's, like, it's specific. It's so specific. And it's 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 it really is insidious, like... I've tried to wear a suit to work and it's, you get destroyed. Mm. It's basically like mockery has formed this middle ground. And if you wear like, if you try to wear like workout gear, you'll get destroyed. Cause it's all very funny people just teeing up on you. Yes. Even if you have like a khaki shirt and some khaki pants, you're suddenly like a member of the Israeli military. You just, there's a way <laughs> to pick you apart. Get crushed. So, but it ends up in this very, typical uniform and it's a shame i've worked with some super dapped like amazing dressers and that's always fun like prentice penny is a terrific dresser Mm. mara brock akil is she is the nicest person i've ever worked with she created girlfriends in the game she worked on cougar town for a year one of the nicest people i ever worked with and wildly successful and she dresses like a you know just like a, a model like she has like the nicest clothes and i respect people like that because they're just trying some other stuff but for most of us it's like button downs sneakers and you see us on a lot and when you when you're on a lot and you're walking with your crew of writers yeah and there's another crew it's like street gangs yeah the saddest yeah version it's the of saddest. west side and story. you see yourself right yeah yeah it's, it's like west side story but everyone has a deviated septum <laughs> <laughs> West Side Snorri. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're the best. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Guys, how's that credit score? How you doing? Are you worried about it a little bit? Listen, as a guy who's like, 
I, my mom spent most of our life trying to like clean up her not great credit and that we suffered at times when trying to get a car or an apartment or et cetera, or even a cell phone. And that shit is embarrassing when they're like, yo, can you, we just, yes, you can have this new awesome cell phone, but we just need you to like, we need to hold on to $1,200 just to make sure that you, you know, are going to pay your bill. That is rough. And look, you know the better your credit score, the easier it is to get the stuff you want or the less you have to pay. So the question is, why is it so hard to raise your score? But it won't be thanks to Experian. They've launched Experian Boost, a brand new way to instantly increase your credit score for free. A higher credit score can help you establish and get access to credit and preferred rates for the things you want and need in life. And Experian is on a mission to help boost America's credit score, which will help millions of people across the country build and get better access to credit. And for the first time ever, paying your utilities and cell phone can instantly improve your credit score. Because with Experian Boost, it works by giving you credit for the bills you're already paying through your bank account, like water, gas, electric, cable, blah, blah, blah. It's a game changer, y'all. It used to take months to see your credit score rise a point or two, but with Boost, you can increase your credit score instantly. All right. And up until now, you've been paying your utility and cell phone bills and not getting any credit for it. That's that's crazy. Now you can. Okay, so I can't believe it's taken this long for someone to do it. What are you waiting for? Experian Boost can potentially help you establish or increase your access to credit. Boost your FICO score instantly for free. Boost is only available at Experian.com slash curious. That's EX. P-E-R-I-A-N dot com slash curious. Experian dot com slash curious. What about what about when a pitch sucks? Like, do you get crushed for it? Do you just move on? Like it, it's good to move on. I have like a couple a couple bits related to crush to failing, which I will share with the audience if you want to use them. Um like I'll be like in a story pitch, I'll be like you know, maybe at the end of the second act, he gets in his car and just drives off. And someone's like, no, nah, he can't do that because he doesn't know how to drive or whatever. And I'm like, good, you passed my test. <laughs> <laughs> I like uh, that. Yeah. And so the like the, the the passing of a test, like this pitch was just to see if you know what's funny <laughs> is a good way to go. I recently, I was in a room and I just like couldn't get my rhythm for some reason. And I had a joke that I was like, got it. <laughs> And I said it so loud, like, because so, it was a big room, lots of people, and I just wanted to, like, be sure it was heard. And I knew it was guaranteed in my mind that a huge laugh would follow. So I was like, and he eats a chocolate bar, super loud. And it just, nobody even, it was as if I wasn't speaking. <laughs> it was just dead air. And through your mind, no matter how many jokes you've told or how many times you've been, thought you've been funny, you're garbage. Like, it, like, Failing like that, you, you're thinking like, did I, am I speaking English? Like, right. what have I done? You like, start questioning your mom's love. Yes, yes. Like, am I unlovable? Am I, yeah, like, I think my wife is just going through the motions with me. Like, <laughs> right. she's finding an out right now. <laughs> like, my children probably, yeah. like, when I tell them bedtime stories, they're like, uh. Yeah, they're, they're just humoring me. Yeah. They know what's up. They're eight and ten, and they know yeah. what the fuck is up. Yeah, they're waiting for that second dad. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely it's definitely soul crushing, which is why it's a fun job because you're humbled by it. But it is you do have to be careful. Like if you 
if you're volume if you're a volume pitcher, which means you 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 know you send a lot of stuff over the plate, you have to have a thick skin and know that like some of them are not going to be gems, and it really doesn't matter. Like because when you're in a room that's judgmental, and I've been in some rooms that are like they're feeling themselves. So there's this era of like, you better come with the dope shit. And for me, that's always not a good vibe for a room. Gross. It just doesn't work for me. Like I need, if if I'm running a room, it's got to be like, say the weirdest stuff in your mind. And of course, if you're just a chatterbox Joe and you're just telling personal stories and taking up all the bandwidth and it's not leading to a pitch, that's a problem. But people need to be able to try stuff because at least for me, if I'm in a headspace where I'm like, I have to come with only A-plus material, everything I pitch will be bad because I'm like editing myself so poorly. You know what I mean? I think that's, I mean, that's the same way for an actor in the sense of like, you, I remember I recently did this short um, with this like really dope director and, and we had shot like the first five days of it two years ago. Mm-hmm. And for better or for worse, it was like really an ambitious thing. And we ran out of like time and money because we were like, in, it was just short and we went to yeah. Oregon and then Idlewild and all these oh, ill, wow. like we were shooting on Cannon Beach uh, where the Goonies rocks were and <sighs> sci-fi looked sick. And th- I knew this guy was great because yeah. I had seen his first thing, but then I'm, you know, wondering like, will this come together? It's, it's super ambitious. Mm-hmm. So then two years later, we have to do like a day of pickups for the most important scene, Mm. super emotional final scene of the short. But I, he was like, let me show you everything edited together up to this point. And it was fucking dope, Sam. Oh, man. And I remember going, I can now walk on to this day and get emotional and try shit with no fear. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I know his taste is great. Yeah, he's yeah. Like, I can risk being bad to get really close to what's great because I know he's not going to fucking use it. Yeah. And that he's got is, good hands. Oh. Yeah, yeah. That's everything. It is. And I think that's like, and I and it's good for you that you were able to, like, see the rhythm of what he loved, take, inhabit that as an actor, and then go out and just deliver because it was like he provided you with a great target. You know, mm. it was an open target. You knew you had a lot of room as, and latitude. And I think that's what good showrunners do. Um, you know, some are, showrunners would argue very differently. They'd say, you want to like be very hard on your room and create a culture of fear and all that stuff. And that's, it, it works for a lot of writers that way. And like they can do them. But what I want to do is provide a, a target for my writers that's like, fun to hit and also that like they will be rewarded for the weird jokes you know what Mm. i mean and like the one that they're like this will never get in it might get in you know so so and i think that sounds like what you had i want to see that short by the way it's cool it's not where can i get it it's not not out yet it's actually gonna be like a half hour it's it's a half hour show like an anthology so there's four half hours so i don't know we'll see it probably won't get sold um (laughs) that's right that's where I come from. Dude, I just finished a week and a half of pitching, and I was like, this is disparate. Oh, like, man. what? Uh, wait, I wanted to ask you really yeah. quick before we get to that. Yeah. Um, when you're, okay, so like Michael J. Fox show, like you're the dude, right? You're running shit. You're like head honcho in charge, and you have to assemble a writer's room, right? Yeah. And up until a certain point, I feel like, you know, up until, I don't know, 15 years ago, it was just a room of white guys for the most part, writer's yeah. rooms, right? Yeah. So like, and now like, obviously it's become, you know, much more diverse and, and, and beautifully mixed. And yet when you go into it, do you, 
think I re- I've been in certain writers' rooms yeah. where the reference points. I'm like, you all watch the same shit. Yeah, you shop at the same places. You're yeah. all having the same experience. You all live in, forgive me, Los Feliz. <laughs> my beautiful team are East Side people. But it's East just side? like of a specific, it's, you know, it's just a specific, you know, if you're all from Williamsburg, yeah, like yeah. y'all don't know what the fuck is happening in Astoria. For sure. And like, so do you make it a Great point? Greek food. <laughs> right? <laughs> but like, do you make it a point to be like, I need to like really have different voices represented here. It's a great question. And I think I, I have two thoughts. One is I think when you're because as I said, like network TV, there's so much fear involved, so much triangulation of just like, how do I survive this? You tend to hire experience. And I believe in hiring experience. Like you gotta have people on staff who've told a million stories and just have that in their bones. But I think more and more so in a really good way, perspective matters. And so I I just came off working on Blackish, which was awesome because Kenya and Jonathan Groff and uh, all the people who are it's like sort of running that show, they're trying to hire people at the y- younger level who are like really bringing an interesting story to the mix for that show. So the fact that I am in an interracial relationship was great because I could talk about that and mm. Rainbow, the character on that show, is you know an interracial woman and so a biracial woman. So I think experience matters. When I was hiring for Michael J. Fox... I the best hire I made was Alex. Well, the first hire and the most crucial one was Alex Reed, who was like a co-showrunner. Because I was kind of like a middle management guy, and it was a big thing to run this show. So I had a co-showrunner who was like my godfather, who really helped me. Mm. And and then I went about making sure I had as many women as men in my room. Because like to me, that's the secret sauce. Uh, for whatever it's worth, it's just it, at least 50% women is the way to go it, uh, from a comedic standpoint. Why? Uh, I think it, it, it's at least my experience has been it creates a really funny room and there's that dynamic of like getting called on stuff. So when you're so many shows, including Michael J. Fox, the man is sort of at the center of it and the wife character can become can fall into several different traps, right? It can be the sort of naggy role where it's like the taskmaster. So the guy gets the drive in a story and because it's comedy, is making bad choices. And the woman has to be there to be like, don't do those bad choices. And that's not a fun role, you mm-hmm. know? So having a lot of women writers in the room would just check me on my assumptions. Like, I I try to be open-minded, but I absolutely fall into, you know, just being a white dude tropes. And, like, uh, that would be what the guy says, you know, and they'd be like, why can't the woman say that joke or what have you? So, yeah. So that was really important. But I don't think I, I nailed having in a diverse enough room from a point of view of race or sexuality. If I could go back, I would have done better at that. Mm. And that's just something you learn. And it's partly the gauntlet of our my... I produced it with Will Gluck and Richie Schwartz is 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 uh, his producer, and Richie did an amazing job of finding new voices. And out of that, we hired uh, Amy Aniobi, who's gone on to just blow the fuck up. I'm so proud of her. She's got a a million shows in development. She works on Insecure, and um, she's an African American writer. and And that was a great hire. But we should have hired more Amy, Amy Annie Obies and, and from different perspectives. And not only was 
one of the characters on the show, Black Harris, who's played by Wendell Pierce, but like, like you're saying, like the what's going on in Astoria, like right. just having different ways of thinking, and and uh, so it's an alchemy. I, there's some people who are like rejecting uh, the norm and are like, I'm going to hire a bunch of my pals who've never been in a room. And I'm like, that's a terrible idea. Yeah, that's you, an Adam Sandler movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a fucking big mistake. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, uh, it, it's in this in this. <laughs> so funny. Uh, but in this scenario, it's like a little bit of both. I think are really important. Um, really open-minded co-executive producers who are high up, who are exciting and welcoming to younger voices and want to help people figure out the the stuff. Mm. Uh, and young voices who can like push this. Did uh, is is Larry Wilmore a producer on Blackish? He yes he I don't know if he still has a tech, technical credit, but he did do the pilot. I think uh, yeah, he was he, in some capacity in the pilot. He yeah. broke my heart the other day, mm. Larry. No shade, really? no tea, no shade, Larry. I still love you. It's so funny. It 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 speaks so much to pilot season. But I, you know, I I'm I'm a big fan of Larry Wilmore's. He's the man. He's the dude. And I like I love his podcast because I'm a podcast junkie, and you know when someone's got a pod, I listen. And it just was like it was very telling of pilot season. So I'm auditioning for this thing because I'm on some like I'm just an actor who's going to act. Yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. I do. I'm not too good for anything. <laughs> God damn it! It's behavior, man. It's just behavior filmed. And it was for this pilot, and it was like literally. And you'll get this. It was the part was to play like the assistant to this woman who owns this company, and it was literally two pages of sides. Yeah. And I, I literally, and like I'm sitting there in the waiting room with like a bunch of dudes who are like they it. Of all over the spectrum. So I'm like, you guys have no idea what you want. And what I wanted to say was like, cast someone who's just a character for this part. Yeah, yeah. Don't get me. Don't get oh, an actor who's like right. going to try to interpret it and like add some razzle dazzle. Just get like, hire that guy that makes you laugh at, at your local bodega. Hire him. Got it. To right, say right, eight right. lines an episode. Just ultra specific kind of yes. vibe. Uh -huh. Because yeah. he's mastered that character over right. the last 20 years, and I'll never get that. Right, right. But if you keep him within very small limits, he'll be brilliant. Right, right, right. You know, do that. But anyway, so Larry was producing it, and I walked into the audition room, and I'm like, you know, and, and I know how this shit goes. Like, yeah, yeah, you've been there. It's two pages. You've seen a hundred of us. Right. Like, I, I'm not going to take up your time. We're not going to do this. No small talk. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. And it, but, your work. Yeah. Right, right. But I'm like, do I go in? Do I tell him I love the podcast? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I walk in and the woman who, who wrote the show is like very nice. And she's like, hi, nice to see you. Yeah. And I'm like, hi. And Larry, not only did he not say hi, he didn't even look up. Uh, <laughs> and I was so, <laughs> I've been debating telling this story. And again, like, I don't begrudge him for that because it was probably just a fucking long day. But like, I ain't shit. But like, I, you know, I'm even, I'm a little more shit than other actors in that waiting room. And I'm like, if they, sure. I was like, if I'm not getting a hello, I'm like, I don't even know what anyone else in that like waiting room is going to get. Yeah, just say it from outside the door. We'll just, I can hear it. I can hear the rhythms. Can he, can he Skype? Can he Skype himself in? <laughs> yeah. FaceTime your audition. Just me the lines. <laughs> we'll just, I'll just read them. Uh, it, 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 it's an interesting thing, like the auditioning process. I have so much 
love and adoration for actors. Your ability to go in a room, have that weird shit happen, yeah. and then deliver a character performance is stunning I, because you're you're having to all the human cues that make us and which is why it's so interesting that you're a normal great guy ish because 11 years sober and i'm 32 <laughs> I had to get sober at 21 i mean you can imagine <laughs> there, were, there were some things between the morbid obesity and drug addiction <laughs> i really had some semblance of normal <laughs> but as you were saying yeah, we found our level <laughs> we found it over time uh but it is like I think for actors to do what they do, they have to, there's almost a pathology that goes into just, I'm just going to say these words, I'm going to get snubbed in this weird sort of way and not read into it. And because it's keep not going. personal, like most likely not, but you don't know. And that's maybe like Larry Wilmore fucking hates me. Who knows? As we a, never met. You, you, he could possibly hate your guts. He hates me. That's probably. the thing. Fuck. That's what a writer would do. A writer would be like, I, I, some, I engendered this response somehow mm. because you're just constantly overthinking shit. And I think that's the skill of a great actor is to be able to just not overthink stuff, you know. And and uh, I remember there was I took a cold reading class when I first moved out here. I tried to like perform for a minute, did like weird sketch stuff. Did were you on premium blend? Yeah. You did stand I up? I did. I I sang uh, a song with my sister called uh, We Can't Make Love Because We're Related. It's like a love song about how we can't do it because we're related. Uh, <laughs> but it was really fun. We did it on Premium Blend and we did it on uh, this thing called the Hi-Fi Music Hour where we followed Isaac Hayes. Wow. Shaft. Wow. Uh, but so I did a couple things like that early on and got hip pocketed, whatever, you know, that term for being a performer for one year, like for one pilot season. And I'll never forget how difficult it was to like get these sides and uh, and deliver like quickly with a take. And the guy who was killing it in my cold audition class was this weird 22-year-old party animal who would sometimes come to class like, half dressed like just a mess like he's clearly like drunk in class mm. and just flaming it when it came to like delivering a performance just just like solid gold it felt like oh this is like what brando was like like just a weirdo right who just in just can deliver and and i could never do that because i just like i just did i couldn't detach from my brain you're up here you're in you're in the <laughs> yeah. brain box yes like me yeah. my friend yeah dude i fucked that guy but yeah yeah. <laughs> like, yeah that weird party animal man i know those people and and i know what you mean it was yeah. so funny like i also believe that auditioning and like pitching mm -hmm. is a weird talent in and of itself that isn't necessarily synonymous with a person who's great at delivering oh, totally. after the fact yeah. but it's like this it's so funny i auditioned for this like netflix show the other day this like sitcom and and the first audition went beautifully and it was mm -hmm. a sitcom and i was like very emboldened with like yeah. i know how to i know how to do this like i got this i'm definitely not the best i'm far from like anything we all know this we've worked together for a long time but like i'm like I, the man. I know how to tell fucking these like silly but um bump jokes for sure and so they're like great we're gonna screen test you, great, and like, you know, me, I'm like, man, like, how am I gonna decorate my trailer? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, what am I gonna eat from craft service the first day? <laughs> yeah, like, do they I'll, have a USB thing on the TV so I can play my 
my phone right into the yes. plasma. Yeah. Like I hope they have like Apple TV so I can just like imme- like airplay it. <laughs> and, uh. and uh and so then they're like, okay, and you know, you're gonna come in for this chemistry test with Dennis Quaid, because oh, he's the star of it. I'm like, me and D Quaid, we're gonna fucking get on fine, like two vets. Yeah. <laughs> and so I go in and I'm sitting in the waiting room and D Quaid's in there, brought his dog. I, I probably uh-huh. I don't know if I'm speaking out of school. It's fucking cute, but he brought his dog and he's like there and he's like beautifully chiseled. And, yeah, so rugged. Yeah, just rugged, looks yeah. great, lean, stamos level oh, lean. Wow. Like that, yeah, shouldn't like that. be that lean in their fifties, but sure. somehow they did it. They figured it out. Yes. And and I'm there in the waiting room, and I talked about this on the pod the other day, but it was like, there was this one kid who had beat me out for a role. Mm-hmm. Then there was another guy who walks in who had auditioned for Grandfathered, who was at the screen test, who literally like walks in and goes, well, I hope this doesn't go the same way. <laughs> and I was like, that's amazing. And like, you should get this role now, because yeah. like, I'm the asshole that got that one. <laughs> but I'm like looking at the three of us of like, yeah, like we're all guys who got each other's roles before. Right, right. And all roles that I'm sure in the moment were like, this is the one where I stop auditioning. Yeah. Like yeah. fucking. Offer only. Bop, bop, bop. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and here we are all again yeah. singing for our soup, trying to be the guy. And I just remember, and I like really knew the beats of this yeah. thing and how to make it funny. And I walked in and I don't know whether it was me. I'm sure it was me. But it was like just the dynamic of me and D. Quaid or mm. what. But it was just not good. I was oh, like, man. this is not. We are not flying here. We are grounded. When you're in a scene where that starts to happen, Mm. is there a way out? Or is it like, because once you're there, that's like for me when I pitch a bad joke, I'm gone for like an hour. You know, it's hard to come back. How do you rewrite yourself? I was fucked up because it was was a sitcom. Mm -hmm. And so the rhythms were off and it just feels to me like a sitcom is very rhythm based. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I also, you know, I started playing with it and stuff because I, I, I was like, I can fix this. Mm-hmm. Like, I just, th- you know, throw a little extra sauce on this yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll make it happen. Yeah. But it just wasn't, fly- you know, it just wasn't there. Yeah. And I don't know if it had been a single camera, maybe I would have, or a single cam comedy, I, I'd feel more emboldened to like be, to take longer breaks. Right, right, right. It just feels like a sitcom is very much like, a plus B equals C. It's got to equal C. You yeah, have yeah, to yeah. hit this beat. Otherwise, mm-hmm. yeah. And like, whereas like a single cam, you can kind of find it and maybe totally. take the uh, the not obvious choice. Yeah. And you know that if you have a great editor or a great, you know, producer, they can, the, the half choice that you made actually is really funny if you cut right in the middle right. or whatever. And that, and that, you know, in the good hands, your shit can be, you know, made really cool, even if on the day you felt like, oh, this piece was good and this piece was good, but the middle was weird. Right. Yeah. I have a lot of respect for um, for multicam, and I've never really done it. I, early on in my career, I've helped on a ton of punch-ups and stuff, but I've never worked for a full season as a writer on a multicam show. And the other day I was helping a friend with a punch-up, and one of the guys who was with us had just produced uh, a really funny CBS uh, half-hour multicam. And the way he was giving notes in the post-table read was about, like, what would happen in this physical space. It was notes about behavior and, like, physical bits that you could do. And it was so smart because it's just a different form. It's like, oh, yeah, like, 
these two people are going to have this conversation, but while they're having it, you know, one is going to back the other into a corner. And mm. like, that's going to be the joke of the scene is the physical reality of him getting. And as a single cam person, you see it in shots, but you don't quite see it as like a stage play. You know what I mean? Which right. is cool. Do you, um, yeah, it's an, it, it, it's an interesting sort of dynamic. Like when you're, when you're approaching writing sort of, whether it's something new or you're trying to like break new story, what are like the most important tenants to you or like, what are, what are your signposts along the way? Is it just having your protagonist make bad decisions? Mm -hmm. Is it, you know, getting the conflict sort of on the page, you know, within the first three pages? Like where does yeah. it, where does it begin for you? Well, I'm trying to open up a little because I've been a network writer for a pretty long time, like 14, 15 years. And, uh, I'm, currently developing for cable and streaming and i'm super excited about it but i'm also trying to question a lot of my instincts and on blackish one of the very cool things about being on blackish is that kenya barris doesn't want to do things the normal way so a lot of times if you've been doing this for a while someone says you know the story's about you know the kid loses their homework or whatever Sounds like actually a pretty good story. That's that's mine, guys. You can't take that. <laughs> that I get it now. <laughs> uh, but like, I know the beats of how that story plays out in my head because I've seen a million hours of TV. I've been doing this for 15 years. So you, very quickly, you can kind of do the beats that you, you know, at the sec first act break, this is going to happen. And the second act break, this is going to happen. And Kenya would often push us to be like, let's try a different way. You know, and that was really fun because you start to break down story differently. So mm. in sitcoms, you there's this cadence in single camera where in the third act, you know, there's going to be a sort of repairing of a problem somehow. And we do this on Grandfather sometimes. There's sort of a heartfelt moment. There's that music sting we all know um, or like an indie rock song, you know, and backing up from that, you have a story where someone makes a bad choice um for the best reasons and then they have this scene where they explain to their partner or whatever like i meant to do this but i did this and that was bad and now we're on the same page it's like so formulaic that at its best it can be amazing and there's shows that do that every week for 10 seasons but for me i've been really into the way uh dramas are built on the streaming platform and doing comedy that way where it's all serialized so you're just following one narrative like a movie mm. that you're just chopping up into bits like true detective first season did this really well where if you think about it it was just kind of like an all right b mystery movie but they broke it down into these human behavior in such an interesting way that over eight hours, they took a two-hour movie, they stretched it into eight hours. So that's what I've kind of been trying to do this year is like take a two-hour comedy as it would be as a feature and just splice it up. And so that you're following these sort of season-long character arcs more than – so it's – what I like about it is humans don't really make – bad decisions every week. You know what I mean? Like we make, we make a bad decision that plays out over a long period of time. And, and that's sort of more interesting to me now is sort of these long narratives. Hey, did you know grandfather was going to get canceled? <laughs> that's the best ever. Hey, what about, <laughs> I, um, I'm fascinated with this because yeah, yeah, I've, yeah, I've yeah, obviously yeah. asked Danny Chun this and yeah. like as an actor uh, on it, I just remember, cause you know, these things are weird. It's the weirdest time when you're on a show that's 
getting weird. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, and halfway through, and like, you know, all the auspices are right. And like, you guys are yeah. great. And John's great. And Padgett's great. And I'm fine. And like this whole thing. And then you're like, and then I just remember feeling, and I'm not like a guy that goes and reads all the bullshit, but I just yeah. was like, I don't think enough people are watching this. <laughs> like, yeah. And then I remember we finished and everyone was so lovely and like, see you next, you know, see you in three months. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I don't know, maybe not. <laughs> the cargo pants guy's like, quesadilla's first day, they're back. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, did I know, I- Or have a feeling. Well, I will say this, I think- the modern network experience, one of the things that makes it really hard is about three or four weeks in, you the writers start worrying. You know, like you see three nights of numbers and you already in your head. I was hanging out with a writer the other day, this amazing writer, Blake McCormick, who I was like, hey, how are the ratings on this show? And he said, I don't know. And I was like, how do you not know? Like writers get so worked up about ratings because we know that it often will be the death of a show. So I don't think, I thought Grandfathered was super great. And I remember feeling like it really could have gone either way mm. because it was at a time when Fox was getting low ratings, like oddly low ratings across the board. And we were very consistent with what other shows were getting. And I felt like you've got John Stamos and he's repping for the show. He's killing himself. He's really in on it. And you've got Dan Fogelman, who's a titan. Give it another shot. Like you, 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 what often happens? And I listen to Danny on on your show, and uh, he was much more articulate than I am. By the way, never. Uh, Come but, on, Danny. No, Danny, he's the best. <laughs> he is the best. But Danny was saying, like, um, you know, that he he sort of like once the show kind of felt like it was maybe going away. There's like a relief to that because it's, it's so, so hard to do what he did, which is be a showrunner. So much work. Um, and I think that that happens, unfortunately, early on in network TV, depending on where you are, because uh, they're so trigger, they're quick to pull stuff. But then what Danny was also saying is the next year they'll bring back a show, a new show, and it'll get less of a rating than the last show. And you're like, why wouldn't you, like an incumbent president, like why wouldn't you fuck with this one more cycle because you have this baseline that's not the best, but if the second show maybe comes with more specificity or is even better, it'll, you know, it'll, it's been around. So people know like, okay, yeah. that's a thing. And you built some shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You don't need new <laughs> sets. Man, the Michael J. Fox set was like a million dollars, dude. Bro. There was, it was, we had to raise it all two feet so that you could shoot out of apartment windows, making it look like it was like the 20th floor or what have you. And I just think we raised this entire set. It costs like, I don't know, it costs several hundred thousand dollars just to raise it two feet. And we did that not with the idea that we're going to do 22 is what we did. We're going to do like a hundred. And when you make that choice to yank all that, for another thing that's like the Coconut Bros, that nobody knows what the Coconut Bros are, and it's one of 500 shows, uh, it, it, I don't understand why they always throwing new programming out. And like, the, Grandfather was, I think we were just figuring out our, our chemistry, which is what it takes. It takes the first year of a show to figure out why you're funny. And right. then the second year, it gets better, you know? They always, I've heard someone say this once, that writers always say, the first year, um, the actors work for you, 
The yeah. second year we work together, and the third year <laughs> you work for us. That's absolutely correct. <laughs> Is that true? Yes. Oh, because the actors become motherfuckers. They they just they, <laughs> yeah. I mean, let it out, Layborn. Uh, they're fucking... so mean to us. <laughs> they're so mean to us. We get our... opinions. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it becomes it becomes it's interesting because I remember like if a if a show wins an Emmy, it's the done. next year some performers, not all. Some performers are going to come with like 150% of what they had. So it's like too much of a good thing. You mm. know what I mean? It's like the dish was just salty enough. But now they're going to go extra because they they feel like there's an Emmy nom in here for me. So I'm going to push it a little. Right. And then it gets it gets into that weird space. But I think if you've done a good job, you've kept actors in the process enough. But that definitely is the is the standard. It's like by season three or four, you also are negotiating a new deal as an actor. Yeah. And so you're like, I think this is the way that thing. I the worst thing is I feel bad for visiting directors because terrific directors who are geniuses in their own right come in for a week to work with these actors who are really feeling themselves. And they're like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if you uh, picked up that bottle for a goof? And they're like, fuck you. I don't think that's funny. Yeah. And you're like, okay, cool. I'm going to be back in Video Village. Well, that's because uh, that's action. the gig, right? Yeah, yeah. You just have to be the most likable, and it's a shame because um, you know there's just some really cool directors who are who have cool visions, want to advance the narrative a little, try some shit. Like Stuart McDonald. I don't know if you remember him. He directed a. I think that's his name, Michael. Michael. Well, Mike McDonald's man. Yeah, he's a yeah. good buddy of mine. But Stuart. Maybe it's not McDonald. He directed a lot of Summer Heights High. Yeah. And he did um, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. He did. He did Grandfather. Yeah. He's the best. He's the best. The best. And he pulled the wall for the first time on our set. It was an episode I had written, and a lot of it was a conversation with you and Drake. It was Josh and Drake. It was like, remember he came on? I remember. And it was- Wow, uh, my world just melted. Sorry. <laughs> it was it was fantastic. And he pulled the wall so he could do long lens conversation stuff at the table. He knew we were going to be stuck at this table. Everyone on set was like, this asshole. It's going to take 30 minutes for us to lift this wall. And it, that absolutely made the episode. And so he probably would not have been invited back. I don't, I'm not saying anyone in particular, but like the studio had been like, you know, this day took 16 hours. It should have been a 13 hour day. But really? he, he was trying something. And so a guy like that. Even though it was successful, he wouldn't have yeah. been invited. Well, maybe he would have. I'm just like postulating. Like there's a world in which he would get. Because it costs money. Right. And, and maybe the grips weren't feeling him that day because it was like they had a long day. And so the chatter thing starts and people aren't into him. And then suddenly the actors are like, why is this guy. Here, I've got to get up early and see yeah. my kid's show I, or whatever. I have Krav Maga. Yes, I got <laughs> It's mostly Krav Maga, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so, so that's the hardest job is to be a director, a visiting director. I, I, I have a buddy who's like a very talented, like has created shows, directed mm. big budget Hollywood movies. And he directed a show. I'm not going to say who the star of it was, yeah. but another very large 80s star. Yeah. And... and <laughs> He shows up on set and it's early and the star wasn't there yet. And so he just goes, well, why don't we, uh, you know, like, let's get it on its feet and, and see where we uh, we land and, and then we'll bring in the departments. And 
So they do that, and yeah. then they bring the departments in, and then the star shows up, and he fucking yells at my friend in front oh. of everyone, and it's like, no, 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 we don't do this, we don't put it on his feet. We, as the actors with the director, we talk it out first. We do like a little read through private, right. like, and just like sunning him in front of everyone. Yeah, yeah. And so he sort of acquiesced and right. said, okay, like, and did that, and then, you know, my buddy is in that funny position where he's like, I don't like, this is dope money. Yeah. Like, and it's a week right. and I don't really have to care. And, and that this will buy me a couple months of runway of paying my bills. Right. 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 But I also have a little bit of scratch and I don't yeah. have to totally like kiss your ass and hate myself. Yeah. And so he went to the guy's trailer and he was like, listen, like this is your show. I'm a guest. Totally get that. And I'm here to make you happy, but, you can never talk to me that way in front of everyone again. Good for him. Man. And if you do that, I'll just leave, like, and get somebody else. And of course, like, like any of these guys, right, like he right. immediately bought it, you know, bought it back and was like, yeah, yeah. oh no, 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 I didn't, you know, I didn't mean it's it. It's like all that. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's important because even if the guy kind of shrugged it off like it didn't even happen, yeah, he got information that day that he probably doesn't normally get. Like I've worked with actor directors that I'm just like man, let me please get a pilot on the air so I can hire them who will get sunned by, you know, a big actor. And they're, they're not telling that actor, you know, because they know it's a game. Yeah. They want to curry favor and they want to play the political thing as they should. But it's good that your friend stuck up for himself and said, you know, it's, it's not worth it to me. Like, I mean, I feel I've been in this position where I've seen like actors run riot where they just get wild, like they just wild out and like, <laughs> and I'm sure you've had it with certain, I don't know, maybe certain writers, maybe not, but yeah, like, yeah. where I've just been like, you've never been punched. Like, <laughs> totally. you didn't, like you wouldn't act this way if you knew what it felt like just to have someone's fist. Right in your face. Yes. As hard as it can go. Like just a good jab, even a strong jab. Yeah. Even like, just like on the side. Yeah. Where they just, they're down for a bit. They can't breathe. Yeah, you just piss like a little bit of blood. Yeah, and right. I <laughs> can't my, make love for a couple weeks. Yeah, my buddy was on uh, a procedural show for a year. Uh, I don't want to mention the creator's name, but uh, Dick Wolf. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, he Rick, Rick Smolf. <laughs> he's got eighty shows on the air, so it he's could be fine. any of them. Yeah, but he was on a particular show. Yeah. that takes place in the midwest and it's about the police <laughs> <laughs> they're not putting out fires just to be clear yeah and there's no medic part of it um and he just told me this story about like how the star of it was such a tyrant and just you know basically just ran riot on set was just an unchecked ego maniacal but it, uh, inevitably in these positions like when someone's been on a show for years like they're the dude, like you're powerless over them if they want to be a fuck. Yeah. And my friend was in in a van and everyone was going to lunch and he's sitting in the front seat and this guy gets in and the van's packed and he starts like kicking my friend's seat. And he's like, move your fucking seat up. Move your seat up. Oh, Jesus This is a grown-up. monster. Like, what, <laughs> like, what are we on the school bus? And my friend fucking turned around and got in his face and put his finger in his face. He said, if you ever fucking touch me or my seat again, we'll go outside of this van right now and I will fucking whoop your ass. Like, <laughs> I love that. What a hero. Dude. And he's yeah. like, Josh, I cannot tell you 
you that for the next week I would walk into the makeup trailer and they would like all you'd hear is yeah <laughs> like bravo sir they were so happy yeah like, somebody speak truth I worked on a show which I will not name well <laughs> first I just want to say there's so many cases like Michael J Fox like you like John who actors are the best yes. so I just want to be on record saying I my experience has been more than often than not they're dope but i had that being said there's this one actor who remained nameless and it was a it was a show with two teen protagonists and these kids were the best and all they wanted to do was try stuff and, mm. and like can i have one more because i want to get more emotional like yeah. i want to care more about my fucking co-actor in this scene Beautiful. and this guy would be like amateurs and just like scream at them and whenever he was on set the entire staff would would shut down and like it 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 was really toxic for everything and he was just like i think he thought he was better than the stuff that he was doing and he just didn't want to be there and he was making everybody miserable um and he uh so so he had this thing where he was like i like to eat in all my seats and it was like getting in the way of the material to a degree and I, I'm all for like real behavior and making sure it feels real to you and doing stuff. But he was just like comically, like he was yeah. constantly eating and thinking he's fucking Brad Pitt and Ocean's Eleven. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Moneyball, whatever Brad Pitt is eating. <laughs> right. He's going to eat. And by the way, Brad Pitt, you've earned it. He needs to eat. Yeah. He's, he's a little thin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's got a, a lot of protein. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this guy who remained nameless, um, I, I hope he doesn't listen to your show. Fuck him. One listener I don't want you to have. <laughs> Fair. Uh, but he, I was like, fuck it. I went back. I was on set in Vancouver and I went back to the room and pitched that he's eating an entire ham in bed as a bit. Like, like I was like, hey, you want to eat shit? Fine. And, and we got like a carving board with a gigantic ham on it. And it was like a bit that he would obviously realize, ha ha, joke's on me. He was all about it. Like we put it in the scene and... I was actually back up there in Vancouver overseeing the production for that week. And he's just with his carving knife, just eating ham, having a scene with his wife about listening more or whatever the scene was about, just eating a gigantic ham in bed without any self-awareness that like, this might be too far. Right. Um, but yeah, there's just some actors who, who do that. Yeah. What, uh, did you work on Arrested Development? Yeah. Yeah. What was that room like? The best. It was, it was my first gig. And uh, shout out to Tom Saunders, who is uh, a hilarious writer who basically I had been a writer's assistant on an earlier show and sat near Tom in the back. I was whack as a writer's assistant. I didn't know how to proofread stuff very well. I wasn't like I hadn't worked in entertainment before. You weren't a quick and for anyone who doesn't know, I wasn't a quick typist. They basically sit there and type it all and format it and proofread it. Yeah. And it's a very shout out to writer's assistants. It's a very hard thing to do. And I sucked at it, so I, I would just sit in the back of the room and like quietly pitch jokes. Yeah. And Tom was the best, and so he 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 and I started collaborating on stuff. Anyways, he put me up for Arrested Development, so it was my first staff job on Arrested Development. I almost shat myself. I was so excited. And we worked really hard. We worked every day, like seven days a week. And is this first season? This like... is third season. Got it. So the f- first two years, there was one staff. And it was such an intense show. A lot of them transitioned on other stuff. And I came in. I was like, I'll work 24-7. I don't mind. And it's it's Mitch Hurwitz? Mitch Hurwitz, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so he he was the showrunner. Showrunner. Like upper-level writers, Jimmy Vallely, who's the funniest guy I've ever been in a room with. Just, just like 
an insane mind fuck of a comic, the funniest guy ever. Um, Richard Day, who's another really funny writer. Uh, Dean Laurie, Maria Semple. Yeah. These are all just killers. And I was just like a nobody. I was just a low-level guy. So a lot of time, Chuck Tatham was there too. Uh, I was just listening. You know, when you're a staff writer, you really try not to pitch that much. Um, Why? Because you just want to... it's sort of like a chain of command thing a little. And I actually respect it. Like you don't want to take up too much of the airwaves as a staff writer. You want to pitch jokes. You don't want to pitch story problems. Like when you're a co-executive producer, you can be like, I don't know, there's something weird about this second act break. It's just not landing. Mm. Uh, And then you can try to, you know, pitch something. But when you're a staff writer, you never want to pitch a problem without a real fix. Like, you don't want to be like, eh, this cold open is just meh. Because <laughs> it's just like, who the fuck is this guy? You know? Yeah. So great. you do a lot of listening. And then when you're in smaller groups, like when you're outlining something, you'll you'll pitch more and you kind of find your opportunities. And then by the end of the first season, you're kind of like growing a little bit. But on that show, there were some real heavy hitters. So most of the first few months, it was just like listening and being a small voice. I remember I pitched like the, uh, I was one of the voice. I'm sure it was like many people. So I'm not trying to take credit for the whole thing, but there's like this car cabin car in season three. And it was at the end of the day and we were trying to figure out how to wrap up a moment. And it was one of my first pitches was sort of like, well, maybe the whole cabin moves on the car. It's like a shout out to the stair car that they have on that thing. And it worked. Like it was a pitch people liked. And I remember just like, going home and just being so excited and Ugh. it ended up not working as well I think as Mitch had wanted and so I was like no why did I pitch it but like at, on that day it felt like a million bucks you know so when you work with people like Mitch and you know Kenya yeah. and Fogelman and yeah. I, I asked this question a lot on the pod and people are probably tired of it but I'm always fascinated like these you know these guys have had multiple shows and a lot a lot of success yeah can you distill down like the one or two traits that you observe in them where you say to yourself like, ah, like that's why this person has this much success? Yeah. Um, I think that's a great question. I love it. Um, I think confidence mm. is a big part of it. And it's not un undeserved confidence. It's confidence based on feeling like you have a good gut and then really staying with your gut. And I can say that I haven't worked with Dan as much as I'd like, but I can say that when he'd come in and have a take on something, he was confident and he's had enough success that like, this is the road. And you're like, fuck, I want to go down that road. And and that is what was really exciting about working with Kenya too, is you would start a pitch and you'd be like, yeah. And then his cousin comes in, he'd be like, hold on. I'm not feeling it. <laughs> you'd be like... <laughs> The cousin's super funny, man. You want to hear about the cousin? Like, I'll tell you about the cousin. You're going to love him. And he's like, no, nah, I'm just not feeling it. And then you'd pitch something else, and he'd be like, yeah. And it just it just felt nice because you felt like this is someone I'm safe with who has a vision. He's not equivocating in front of me um, where – same with Mitch, where, like, he just – he had the, the idea that Rita – on the season three of Rita, Charlize Theron plays a woman who is both uh, – someone who is mentally handicapped Mm. and confused as a British spy and, uh, and a love interest. So she's playing three jokes at every moment. It's Mm. the craziest gambit I've ever seen. And Mitch is like, this is going to be great. And the network was like, I don't know. It seems like it might be insensitive. And, 
at every turn, all the writers would be like, what if we simplify this? And he's like, no, nah, it's going to be like this. And he was right. It was hilarious. And uh, so I think confidence, you know, the ability to just, even for right or wrong sometimes, just to be like, I have a gut instinct that this is a cool path. Let's just go down it all the way. Mm. And, if it, and if it ends up being whack, at least it's specific. You know what I mean? And I try to, you know, on my worst moments this weekend, I was, I was outlining a new thing. And I was having trouble because I was trying to hit the target I think people wanted me to hit. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, what's just going to make me laugh? And then it took me a long time. It's hard to have that confidence. You lose it. And, and even those guys, they lose it at times, whether they say so or not. But then they, before they really are make an actionable choice, they find it again and go from there. You know what I mean? I find as an actor too, like, you know you're dead in the water. If they even smell on you for a second that you're going in wanting to please them. Yeah. And man. also like, uh, if I walk in and I'm trying to read your mind of like, what did he think when he wrote this? Yeah. What did he want? Like, it's just, it immediately becomes sweaty. Conversely, I feel like once you do that first take and you've had a strong take on it, and then you say like, how about in this moment, you know, we lighten it up here. It's like very important to be aware of the note. Even, yeah, if, yeah. even if you're like deep down in your gut, you're like, I don't know if this is as good as my first take. Yeah, yeah. But you also have to kind of show that you're like manageable. That you can adjust. I think adjustments are 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 good, but you're right. Like, it's tricky. Like, being able to adjust... And take the note behind the note is somebody gave me the advice, which is really good. So the note behind the note would be like, uh, you know, I got a note recently on this on this um, top secret thing I'm doing. Uh, but it was like, there's too much story was essentially the note. It came out as a bunch of stuff. And I couldn't see it. And my producing partners at Funny or Die were able to say, this is a real note. Like, cause I was talking myself into it. Like, ah, you know, it'll be fine. Like, I don't think there's too much. And they, or, I don't think this issue that they have is what it is. And they were like, they just think there's too much story. Mm. And once I was able to say that, it was like, yeah, I need to take that adjustment because they're right. Like this shit is not going to be good because it's too much story. So, but, but, uh, I don't know where I'm going. With the note that. behind yeah. the note. Yeah. Yeah. A, a, a life. Note, yeah. That that's that's helpful. The note behind the note, because sometimes you'll fight the the specifics. Like, I want to talk about that issue, whatever. When you realize, oh, they just they have a, a much more simple problem, and it's yeah. probably right. You know, so Sam Laybourne, final question, dude. You ready? I'm ready. I ask this everyone on the pod. Okay. What are your one or two Sam Laybourne commandments? Truths that you have discovered. During your time on this earth that you would want to impart mm. on to someone else. God damn it. That's yeah. good. Commandments. That's good. You can edit out while I think, right? Uh, yeah, please. No mm. problem. <laughs> Four hours later. Don't worry. I stole, <laughs> I stole this from Malcolm Gladwell. It's really good. It's really good. Um, read Malcolm Gladwell. Yes. No, <laughs> that's my thing. Outliers bomb. Um, let me think. I think I would say one maxim that's really worked for me lately I actually read a book that I will drop the Show name off. if that's okay. You read? I read I read a real book. Okay. Uh, it was called Ego is the Enemy, and I'm not usually that dude. Ryan Holiday. Yes. Had him on the show. Get out of town. Look at that. He's Synergy. Come on. Uh, well, please say, t tell him he really fucking saved me this summer. Like, in a real way, I'm not that guy who reads these books, and someone told me, and I finally read it. And what I like about it is he talks about, so I'm a guy who's like, I've had a little success. I'm not the guy, right? I'm not Dan Fogelman. I'm not one of these guys who's mounted a, or Kenya. 
Um, and so I'm still trying to find that space where I can have a real platform and get one of these shots across the board and build from there. And he and his Ryan was basically saying failure is a gift, right? Because it brings you back to that phase where you're starting and you're and you're and you're aspiring to something. And that's my favorite phase. Mm. Like if you can remind yourself if you're somebody who's had success and you're feeling like upset that you're not keeping it going, aspiration is the best. Being a student who's just like I don't know shit because then it's all about the grind and it's all about I'm going to listen, I'm going to study. So for me, I'm trying to do streaming. I don't know anything about streaming content. I've been a network writer. So I'm actually, it feels nice. At first it was like, oh, I'm a guy who's done network forever. How am I going to transition? Now it's like, I'm a student to streaming. That's yeah. all I am, is I'm just starting. So I would say like uh, looking at the life cycles of success and going back to aspiration wherever you can and knocking your ego down and just being like, I'm just a student. I'm just figuring shit out. That's that's one. And, uh, and uh, I don't know, just don't take yourself too seriously. Yeah. Because what, I mean, we're just telling jokes and shit, right? Yeah, we're not fucking solving the world's ills. We're really not. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this, this, if this podcast helped you, it's great. You're welcome. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Sammy boy, you're the best. Dude, this is so much fun. It's we just so chopped good. it up, like you said. Choppity chop. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, we, we did the chopping. We did it. <laughs> Later, bud. Thank you, man. Yeah. You're so seamless. Dude. I didn't even know we were starting. Bro. That was, now we do this. That was it. That was Sam Laybourne. Dude, Sam, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Um, Larry Wilmore, I love you, and I'm an idiot, and I shouldn't have left that in the pod, but I just thought it was a funny story, and you're the best, and I'm just overly sensitive. So um, please come on my podcast. You're the greatest. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, guys, have an amazing, uh, an amazing week, life, and more importantly, moment, because that's all life is. Just moments. You know what I mean? God is in the spaces between your thoughts. So think about that. Boom. Truth bomb. That's how we end it. Boo. Thanks, guys. Love you. Bye.